If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> Romans chapter 4. As Americans living in the 21st century, we have a couple of things working against us as we look at this fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. First is, we value what is new more than what is old. Uh, that has become especially true uh, in the evangelical church in the last 20 years. Perhaps the most overused word in the church in the last 20 years is relevance. Relevance. Everything has to be relevant. If you're not relevant, you're not with it. You have to be hip and cool, and you got to have some music that's got a good beat, and it's easy to dance to, you know, so that you will be with the times. Uh, and <clears throat> Paul's purpose in this letter is to explain that the gospel is not something new. It is something that has been around since the dawn of time. It is how God has always saved his people. And the second thing about Americans is we don't care much for rational proofs. And Romans chapter 4 is an example of classic reasoning. So it's important that we overcome these cultural liabilities and actually listen and understand what Paul is saying here. It, it might help us to understand his method because it differs from some of the other apostles. When Peter preached the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost, he had a method that was the exact opposite of the one that is used by Paul in Romans, <clears throat> Peter's method was to quote an Old Testament text and then explain it. Something that he does three times in that sermon at Pentecost. The scripture first, then the explanation. Paul, by contrast, first establishes contact with his readers, analyzing the desperate condition of the human race without God, and explaining the gospel as being God's answer to that dilemma. And then, after he has analyzed the problem, he proves what he has just taught from the scriptures. He, he's done that twice already. After describing the dreadful depravity of the human race in Romans chapters 1 and 2, using... Uh, the pagans' own terms for the depth of the corruption in uh, chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, then Paul established the same thing by quoting from the Old Testament six times in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Now, having explained God's way of salvation by the gift of grace, uh, in Romans 3, 21 through 31, he proves what he has been teaching by two Old Testament examples. Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, and David, the greatest king of Israel. Uh, two times before this, Paul has indicated that salvation through the gift of God's righteousness, apart from the law, has already been announced in the Old Testament. 
Romans chapter 1 verse 2 and chapter 3 verse 21. Now, he shows that it is not only something that had been previously announced, but it's the only way that anyone, either in the Old Testament period or in the New Testament era, has been saved. That there is there are not two different plans of salvation. There's only one. And that all of those in the Old Testament times who were saved were saved by this gospel. Paul begins with Abraham, uh, and it's clear why he does so. I said last week, Abraham was the acknowledged father of the Jewish people. And with the exception of Jesus himself, Abraham is the most important person in the Bible. He is the giant in Scripture. I mean, you think of all of the Old Testament figures uh, that are prominent. Moses, the a very great man. God spoke through Moses and breaks the power of the tyrannical Pharaoh of Egypt, and he leads the people into the promised land. He is the lawgiver. God appears to him in unique and special ways at the burning bush and on Mount Sinai. David, the greatest of Israel's kings, he brought Israel to the pinnacle of its power uh, in the ancient Near East and expressed a, a profound depth of a knowledge of God in the Psalms that he wrote. Elijah and Elisha, great among the prophets. Isaiah, uh, a powerful statesman and voice of God to Israel in dark days. Daniel, outstanding statesman as well. But if you were to ask all of these Old Testament men who was your father in the faith or who is your father in the faith, all of them would have said Abraham. He was the acknowledged father, the patriarch of the Jewish faith. Early in Genesis, we read of God's promise to Abraham that he would become the father of many nations. Remember, his name was Abraham, which means father of And then he changed it to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, father of many, many nations. And this promise is fulfilled both physically and spiritually. Both the Jews and the Arabs trace their lineage back to Abraham. Uh, The Jews through Isaac and the Arabs through Ishmael. Spiritually, Abraham became the father of all true believers, both Jews and Gentiles. Abraham is our father, spiritually speaking, because we have believed in Jesus Christ. He is the father of all who believe in Jesus. In the New Testament, the origins of salvation are always traced back to Abraham. Paul does it characteristically, as here in Romans, and also in the letter to the Galatians, Galatians chapter 4 and 5. But it's not just Paul who does that. The New Testament begins with a reference to Abraham. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Luke, 
quotes Mary, the mother of Jesus, as saying that God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Abraham is referred to as God's friend three times in the Bible. Second Chronicles chapter 20, Isaiah chapter 41, and James chapter 2. Why is that? The answer is the one that Paul is going to give us here. He is the friend of God because Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. If Paul can prove in his argument that Abraham is the father of all the faithful and that everyone comes into a right relationship with God by faith and not by human works, his case is proved. If he can prove that Abraham was made right before God not by his works, but by what he believed, who he believed in, then this gospel is a true gospel. And there can be no other gospel. Uh, you start by considering the fact that Abraham is unable to be saved by works. Uh, that's the place that we have to start. That if we're going to be saved, it cannot be by our works. Paul begins by saying that there was nothing in Abraham that would have commended him to God in any way. Uh, what shall we say what was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? In the Bible, flesh refers to human activity apart from God's Influence. So the question is this, what did Abraham find to be the case as far as his human ability to please God was concerned? Did he find that he could be saved by it? Uh, and the answer, as Paul shows, is that Abraham was not saved by his own ability. He was not saved by his good works. He was not saved in any way except it came as a gift. It was a gift from God. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God did not look down from heaven to see whether he could find someone with just a little bit of human goodness, even a little bit of human faith, and then on that basis save that person. Uh, it's not as if it's not as if God said, "Oh, look here, I I found this guy, Abraham. Oh, look, Abraham, he's he's got some faith. I think I can work with that. I, I think I can make him into into one of uh, my children. This is one individual that wants to serve me, one individual that will love me, that will obey me. It wasn't like that at all." Uh, Paul had just written in Romans chapter 3 there's no one righteous not even one there's no one who understands no one who seeks God all have turned astray they have altogether become worthless there is no one who does good not even one 
That included Abraham. That includes every human being on earth. If Abraham had no natural good in him, then it is certain that he was not saved by human goodness. So how was he saved? The answer that we keep repeating here is that he was saved by God's gift of righteousness to him, which he received by faith. As we go through chapter 4, you, you have to constantly get in your mind, and we're going to talk about this some more, that it was not Abraham's faith that saved him. God saved him. Faith was simply the channel by which he received the salvation that God gave to him as a free gift. So Paul does not merely mention Abraham's example in a general kind of way. Rather, he refers to a specific Old Testament teaching concerning Abraham. And the text he refers to is found in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. The context of that incident, you remember, is when God took Abraham out under the night sky and asked him to count the stars in the heaven. And he said, your descendants will be as numerous as these stars. <clears throat> now, keep in mind, when God did that, Abraham was 85 years old. And he had no children. And God said to him, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Remember, Abraham kind of says to God, well, you know, the only heir I've got is Eleazar of Damascus, who's a servant in my home. And God says, no, 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 no. From your own body, from your own loins, literally, in the Hebrew, will come a descendant. And then your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham believed God. He believed God. In spite of the fact that we're going to be told his body was as good as dead as far as producing children was concerned. But he believed God. <clears throat> I'll say this carefully. From the viewpoint of salvation, Genesis 15, 6 is the most important verse in the entire Bible. That's because in Genesis 15, 6, for the first time, we have the doctrine of justification by faith alone set forth. This is the first reference in the Bible to faith. It's the first reference to righteousness. It is the first reference to justification. We know that there were individuals before Abraham who were saved, Adam and Eve, Abel, Enoch, Noah, and others. But this is the first time that any specific individual is said to have been justified, declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. Now, how is that accomplished? And here we need to be very, very careful and dismiss two very serious misunderstandings of what Paul is saying. One is a, <clears throat> I suppose you could say, a liberal misunderstanding uh, though it's 
what the great majority of the Jews believed in Paul's day. It supposes that when the text says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, it means that Abraham was just a good, pious, righteous man and that God justified him on that basis. Uh, that the reason Abraham believed was because he was perfect. I quoted to you from the book of Jubilees uh, last week about what the Jews believed about Abraham. Uh, and this viewpoint says, obviously, if Abraham believed God when God promised him children, then he was the type of person who delighted in obedience. And, and it was his pleasure to believe God, do what God told him. And the reasoning goes, Abraham was such a good man, God saved him. Well, that's not salvation by grace. That's works. That's the exact opposite of everything Paul has been arguing in chapter 3. Obviously, Paul would not contradict himself so blatantly. But it's what many people fervently believe. Most people in the world today believe this. If they believe in God, if they believe in heaven, they believe that they will get there just by doing the best they can. You know, preacher, the Bible says God helps them that help themselves. You know what? No, it don't either. It doesn't say every tub sets on its own bottom. You know, no. If you honestly believe that you're going to go to heaven because you're going to be good enough, I have some terrible, terrible news for you. You can't make it because you have to be perfect. I've told you numerous times when I preach funerals, I almost always ask the people, what do you think it takes to go to heaven? Do you think belonging to a church? Do you, do you think, you know, helping the poor? Do you, do you think getting involved in a cause? All those things are fine. There's nothing wrong with any of them, of course. But listen, to get into God's heaven, you have to be absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. Absolutely righteous. No sin. None. Can't go to heaven otherwise. You get that? Abraham could not possibly have gone to heaven by good works because he was not perfect. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones discusses this error and he points out that this is exactly the religion of the Pharisee who, who went up and congratulated himself before God and said, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm not a robber. I'm not a thief. I'm not an adulterer. Especially I'm not like this filthy tax collector over here. That's boasting. That, that is what, if that is what Genesis 15, 6 means, it's the exact opposite of everything that Paul has been teaching. And the second misunderstanding is not a liberal viewpoint but an evangelical one. And it goes something like this. It says, Since Abraham did not have any righteousness in himself by which he could be justified before God, 
But since God wanted to save him, then God looked for something that he could accept in the place of righteousness. And since Abraham had faith, at least a little bit, then God said, even though this little bit of faith is not righteousness, I can work with it. And so I'll treat it as righteousness, and I will save Abraham. Does that sound absurd to you? It should because it is. It's absurd on the face of it. God is not a juggler of truth. God does not pretend a thing is something when it is not. And consequently, if God counted Abraham as being righteous, it had to be on the basis of a true righteousness, not something made up. There had to be a true righteousness that was counted to Abraham, either his or someone else's. God would not substitute the fiction of apples for oranges. That, that, that wouldn't work. Or pretend that the sow's ear of human work is actually the silk purse of salvation. God doesn't do that. God is true. Let every, let every man be a liar. But th this is a common misunderstanding. Let's look at the text again. There's an important word there you have to get. It says, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Ah, there's the rub. What does it refer to? A lot of people look at that and say, well, it refers to Abraham's faith, of course. It refers to faith. His faith was counted as righteousness. No. No, again, faith is just the channel that we receive this true righteousness. What is the antecedent of faith, or of, of it? The, the, the misunderstanding that I've been talking about, again, would, would have us to maintain that the antecedent is the fact that Abraham believed God, that he had faith. But you can't support that grammatically. It demands a noun, at least a verbal noun, as an antecedent. And the text supplies neither. That fact alone says we've got to look for something else as to what was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. And secondly, and I'm not going to, I got, I got this all down here. Uh, but grammatically, the, the words that are used here, the Bible says we're saved by faith. And the word that is translated by and th sometimes through can also be translated as because of. But grammatically, anytime the Bible talks about us being saved, it never says because of. Because it's in the genitive case rather than the dative case. If you don't understand that, congratulations. You know, it's Greek to me. It should be Greek to you because it's Greek. But you'll just have to take my word for it. I, I, I can show it to you. But grammatically speaking, the Bible always says that we are saved by faith, through faith. Always the genitive case. Making faith the channel of salvation, but not the ground of salvation. 
In order to spend a $20 bill, you have to have faith in its purchasing power. But it is not your, it is not your faith that is the basis of the purchase. It's the value of the money. It's the same thing spiritually. So faith cannot be a substitute for righteousness because the word counted here does not permit that interpretation. I, I said the word in Hebrew and in Greek are bookkeeping keeping terms. They refer to accounting, a field in which the person has to be 100% right. Suppose that I'm walking around with $10 in my pocket, okay? And I want to have more money than that, all right? So I get out my checkbook, and on the line where you put a deposit, I write down $10,000. Now, now I've got $10,010, or have I? In order, to, in order to actually have $10,000 in my checking account, I have to deposit $10,000, or somebody else has to do it for me. Otherwise, it's just fictional bookkeeping. It won't work. I go try to cash a check for that, and, well, you don't have the money. Oh, no, see, right here I wrote down $10,000. Well, you've actually got to deposit $10,000 you understand? I actually had this happen many, many, many years ago. I was pastoring up in Claiborne County, and there was a man down in Cumberland Gap. He never had a checking account. So he, he got a checking account. So he's down at the store one day, and he's telling everybody about checks he had written. And somebody said, somebody said, Joe, do you, you have that much money in your account? Oh, he said, I'm sure I do. Look at all these checks they gave me. Ah, that's not the way it works. In order... In order to spend an amount of money, you have to have that amount of money. Uh, it's the same way spiritually. In order to be counted righteous, there had to be a true righteousness that God could count Abraham righteous. When God saved Abraham, he did two things. One was positive, one was negative. He did, first of all, what Paul quotes David as saying in verses 7 and 8. We talked about that last week. Blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. Remember that sins are sins of omission and commission. If David had not omitted anything, he had not committed anything, then he had kept the law of God. God counted him righteous. He did not impute sin to him. So the first thing that God did was that he did not reckon Abraham's sin against him. He did not count his sin against him. How did he do that? Did he, did he merely strike Abraham's transgressions life and forget him? No. Again, God doesn't play games like that. He removed Abraham's sins from the ledger of Abraham's life and put it in Jesus Christ's ledger, his life. He imputed, he counted all of Abraham's sins to Jesus Christ. He's already talked about 
The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Abraham believed God. And God counted him righteous. He put all of Abraham's sins on Jesus Christ. Then he took the righteousness of Christ and put it into Abraham's account. So the it in verse 3 refers to the righteousness of Christ. That was counted, credited, imputed to Abraham. We're all, all who go to heaven will go to heaven on a borrowed righteousness. I said, you have to be perfect to get into heaven. You do. You do. The only perfect person who ever lived is Jesus Christ. If his righteousness is not counted as yours, you will not see heaven. If your sins are not put upon him, they're still on you. And you will not see heaven. That's the, 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 the hymn that we love to sing, you know. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Dressed in his righteousness, faultless, perfect, before the throne of God. That's the only way anybody has ever been saved. It's, it's the only way that anyone will ever be saved. Is the righteousness of Christ credited to you and your sins counted to Christ? People have, have understood that in various degrees. Um, the great tragedy of the 21st century is there, there are many evangelicals who don't understand it as well as Abraham did. And they've got the whole New Testament to show them what it's about. I'm gonna, we're going to look at another study that Abraham understood quite a bit more than most people give him credit for. But regardless of the degree of understanding, the only way that anyone is ever saved is by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to our account. Abraham believed God. And it, it, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, was counted to him as righteousness. That's what happens when you are saved. That's what happens when you believe on Jesus Christ. God counts all the righteousness of Christ to you. He moves all of your sins onto Christ. And you stand faultless someday before the throne of God. A couple of things in conclusion. In conclusion. Whenever a preacher says that, you know he doesn't mean it. But in conclusion. You see here the importance of the scriptures. Paul has been taking three chapters of Romans to explain man's great need. And God's perfect remedy for that need in Christ. But here at the point of proving and clinching his argument, he bases everything on one verse of the Old Testament. One verse. 
I get tickled that people say, oh, you know, you, you believe this, but God only says that one time in the Bible. Uh, exactly how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? Once. That'd be, I think it would be good enough. <laughs> Here's one verse and one additional verse to establish the testimony of David. And then having stated the biblical teaching, Paul moves on. No need to speculate any further. No really need to talk about it anymore. One clear statement from the Bible settles it all. Secondly, see the hopelessness here of being saved by good works. Abraham was a good man, a great man, one of the greatest of men, a model of Old Testament piety, but he could not be saved by his works. If Abraham couldn't be saved by good works, neither can I, neither can you. We're not nearly as good as Abraham was. Secondly, we can have confidence in the gospel. Jesus Christ testified to Abraham being a saved man by on one occasion talking of Abraham's bosom as being a synonym for paradise, for heaven. Abraham was saved, but not by his own ability, not by his own goodness, but by the same gospel that I'm preaching to you right now. If Abraham was saved by this gospel, you can be saved by this gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And finally, we see the proof of the timelessness and the validity of the Christian gospel. This goes back to the beginning. How was Adam saved? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's the only way anybody's ever saved. How do, how do, how do men get to heaven? now or in any time in history through the work of Jesus Christ. No other way. There is no other way to heaven. Jesus didn't say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Although those guys in the Old Testament got in another way. <laughs> no, no. No one comes except through faith in Jesus Christ. This gospel is all we have. It's all we need. We need, we need it, and we need it every day. As a believer, do you see the need of the gospel every day? It is this gospel that enables us to get through every day of our lives until God takes us home. Let's pray. Our Father and our God,